Um, I actually have a prop with me this morning, and I kind of feel as if I'm channeling um, the old uh, Baptist minister at Mitcham Baptist. When I was a young boy, I went to Sunday school at Mitcham Baptist, and I remember Mr. Pocklington every week. He would have a brown paper bag, I should say, not plastic. I don't even know if there was plastic back then, but a brown paper bag. And he will have something in there, that, uh, some sort of prop that he would share with the congregation at some stage during his message. So I have a prop. Uh, we'll get to it in a few minutes. Uh, just again, I want to say welcome to you all this morning. We are, of course, continuing our series through uh, the book of Philippians. So I encourage you, if you have a Bible handy, to turn to Philippians chapter 2. And we're going to be reading from verses um, 12 to 18. From as far back as I can remember, I've always had a real interest in how things work. Um, Even now, I often look at a particular item and I've got thoughts going through my mind, what is going on behind the scenes that I can't see that causes that particular item to be able to do the things for which it was designed to. As a young child, most of the toys that I received, I ended up pulling apart because I was really interested to know what was going on inside. Now, in the interests of openness and transparency, I have to confess that most of those toys didn't quite work the same after I tried to put them back together again. But one of the things I found during my destructive phase of life is that you can, you can have two, two items that appear very much the same on the outside, but once you pull them apart, once you strip them down, They can often be quite different, very different. And it's true today as it was then. It's true of the cars we drive. They all show up in the showroom shiny and new. But we know that not all cars are created equal. It's true of the very houses that we live in. Over the course of a house's life, the skill of the tradesman that built it and indeed the quality of the materials that are used in that building eventually come to light. For me, uh, one of the most classic examples, and this is where I get to my prop, one of the classic examples for me today is the humble cordless drill. Hands up if you've got a cordless drill in your house. I would expect that most people would have a cordless drill in their house, and I would encourage you that if you don't, to go out and buy one this week. Because... (laughs) there is hardly a more useful tool that you can have in your house. I've got a little secret. I asked the pastors how many of them had a cordless drill. One of them said they had one. One of them said they had one, but it didn't quite work properly. And one of them didn't. So I'm just going to, I'm not going to name names. I'm going to leave you to, to discover who that might be. But the humble cordless drill, if you were to go out to the hardware store Bunnings this week and buy a cordless drill, I guess... Maybe you could pay as little as $80 for one. But then you could walk down the aisle and you'll find you can actually spend three or four or five or $600 or even more on your cordless drill. Now, it's not, it's not how it looks like on the outside that governs how much you're going to pay for it. It's what's go- going on internally. It's the quality of what's going on internally that's going to govern how much you pay. I can put my prop down now. The true quality of something is not found in its outward appearance. Anything can be made to look good on the outside, but it's what's going on inside 
that w- where we cannot see that tells the story of whether something is well made, whether quality materials have been used in its production, whether skilled craftsmen have been involved in its creation. And it's sobering to note that this is also true with you or I, with the people that, that we come into contact with. This morning we'll notice that Paul is asking the Philippian church to consider what is going on where no one else sees. He's saying to us, what's going on with your eye in those places where no one else has access to? Let's read together the passage. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 18. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life. In all that my boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing. But even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Now there's a phrase in this text that if we don't properly understand will lead us to confusion. Right from the opening words in this letter, Philippians chapter 1 and verse 1, Paul's opening words, he spells out both who he is and who it is that he's writing to. He says in chapter 1, verse 1, he is a servant of Christ Jesus, and he says that he's writing to the saints, that's the Christians in Philippi. That opening salvo influences all that he says, all that he writes to the Philippians henceforth. When he talks about joy and suffering, when he rejoices over people preaching the gospel, even if it's not out of right motives, when he shares the example of Jesus' humility, when he commends them for their generosity, when he asks them to be united in Christ, all of these things are written through the prism of this single assumption. He, a servant of Christ Jesus, is writing to the saints, to the Christians at Philippi. So if you're not a Christian, some of what you hear as we study through this book of Philippians will be difficult to assimilate because it is so foreign to what your life experiences are. The truth is, without Christ in you, without the spirit of the living God at work, so much of what we talk about, of what we encourage each other with in church life, becomes hard work. If you're not a Christian and you try and practice what I just mentioned, joy and suffering, unity in Christ, thankfulness, generosity, at some point, it's all just going to get too tough. And guess what? No one's surprised. I'm not surprised. There's a number of different reasons why people come to church. It might be that you're a young person and you're here because that's the expectation of your parents. Because your spouse will think less of you if you wake up in the morning and say, I just can't be bothered. Perhaps it's the friendships in church life that you really come to enjoy. 
or maybe you're, you're looking at it from an intellectual perspective. Just how do you get to understand this Christian thing, this faith that so many people talk about? And it's okay. I've been there myself. As I said, I went along to Sunday school at uh, Mitcham Baptist, not really understanding anything of the Christian faith at all, but listening to the stories and thinking they were pretty good. You see, where Christ has not changed you from the inside out, church is a challenge. There are times when there's frustration, disappointment and confusion about what Christianity really is. But if you think that through sheer will or hard work, you're going to get it, then you're mistaken. Now that's not to say we don't want you here, nor do we judge you for it. We've all been there at some stage. But what we'd like you to consider, that perhaps the reason church is a difficult thing for you to come to grips with, to understand, is because you're approaching it from the wrong viewpoint, from the wrong perspective. And if that describes you this morning, I just want to encourage you to be listening from the perspective of how a true relationship with Jesus Christ could look like for you. I've entitled today's message, Owning Your Faith, because as I've continued to read and meditate on this particular passage in Philippians, I can't help but feel that that is what Paul is seeking to get across. This faith that you have been called to, the relational nature of your life in Christ, given to you by God through faith, it's yours. It didn't come by birthright, through being better than anyone else, It wasn't luck or because you happened to be in the right place at the right time. You were called out of this world to be in Christ because he chose you. Paul says to us in these verses, own it. Take what you've been given and allow it to bear fruit. And here is what it looks like. Verse 12, he begins, Therefore, dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence. Therefore, Because of Jesus Christ's self-sacrificial, willing, humble journey to the cross. Because everyone who has ever lived will someday bow before King Jesus. Here are a few pointers. And he kind of takes up from where he left off in chapter 1 and verse 27. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit. Paul is absolutely confident in their growth, regardless of whether he's present, regardless of whether he's there to spur them on. He has great confidence that they are going to continue in the faith that they've been established in. I was was thinking during the week, if you or I sleep seven hours every night, now I know that some of you, particularly with young kids, are going to be saying, I wish, I wish I got seven hours sleep a night. But working on the theory that at some point in our lives we get at least seven hours sleep. That means we're awake for 119 hours every week. Now, working on the assumption that you get to church on time, you are here for an hour and a half every morning. And add another half hour or so for a bit of chit-chat afterwards. It works out somewhere around 1.5% of your waking hours every week are spent here at church. Now, let's be honest. How well do we really know each other? 
As a pastoral team, how do they know that the kind of stuff you talk about here is real to you? That your public persona is true or put on? Are you the same at home as you are here? In fact, let me drill down a little deeper. Is that inner person that only you really know about consistent with what you portray to others? Does it dovetail into the faith that you profess? Even among the pastors and elders, we recognise that this is a challenge for us to try and get to know each other, to try and be accountable to each other. And we're we're endeavouring to to grow a group of leaders that are accountable to each other as they are before God. But the reality is that we cannot possibly know everything about each other. So from a pastoral perspective, Paul's opening words in verse 12 are of significance. I believe he's saying, own the faith that you've been given. How does your private life stack up with what you show on Sunday? Now, Paul's not talking about perfection. We know that. He's not talking about being perfect. He's talking about a prevailing desire to be faithful before our God where no one else sees. Or could it be that your Christianity is only one that is really alive when you know one of the pastors coming? Oh, goodness. Nate's coming to visit. I better read up and start reading my Bible and praying so at least when he asks me some questions I can confidently say yeah uh, I've been reading the word well he goes on in verse 12 and he says continue to work it out continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose now when he says to work out your salvation If we were to argue that he teaches salvation by any other means than by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, we are teaching a false doctrine. Nath mentioned that uh, last week or a couple of weeks ago. This is serious stuff. The Bible doesn't support that view. Paul would be the first to decry such heresy. For it is he who said we have been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. 30 years ago, I was nagged by my sisters to go to a youth group camp um, down at Forest Hedge. It was the middle of winter. I hopped on my bike and I'm riding down a Forest Hedge. It was freezing cold. I didn't want to go. I couldn't see the point in it. I was within minutes of turning around and going home because I couldn't find where I was supposed to go. And suddenly there's this little sign that tells me where to go. So I go down there and it was that weekend that I was converted, that I became a Christian where I asked God to forgive me of my sins and receive Christ as my saviour. That moment I was justified before a holy, righteous God and I'm no more or less justified today than I was then. But there is something that is radically different about me now, some 30 years later. It's that process of sanctification that God is at work within me. God is in the business of changing me, of making me what he wants me to be, what, what he wants me to be. Now, those of you who know me know that he's far from finished, and that's fine. So in what sense do we work out our own salvation? It's important to notice what Paul says here. He doesn't say work for your salvation. He's asking us to work out our salvation. He's asking us to work out what God is putting in. 
Sanctification is not ultimately completed this side of glory. But when the Spirit of God convicts us, when we're challenged or compelled to do something, to confess a sin perhaps, to restore a relationship, to bear fruit in our life, to study or read God's Word, when we're challenged to apologize to our kids when we've been unfair or harsh, or to ask for forgiveness from our spouse or someone else for unkind words that we've said, when we're encouraged to think of others above ourselves, this is sanctification in action. And it's not a robotic in nature. It's not like, you know, when you watch uh, The Matrix and someone's got to suddenly learn how to fly a helicopter. It's okay, we'll just plug something into the back of your head and we'll put the program down and you'll have it down pat in a few seconds. No, generally speaking, this is a process. As the Spirit calls, directs and challenges us, the question is, how do we respond? Titus 2, 11 and 12 says, The grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. He goes on to say, It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age. It's teaching us how to walk, how to go about this life that he is putting in. In all these things, there's a choice to be made. Will we submit, listen, or act on what God is asking of us? This is working out what God is putting in. And there's a great blessing to be found in walking his path for our lives, in bearing powerful testimony before our God. But there's a kicker of an inducement here, isn't there? (laughs) Paul adds this exhortation, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now we're not talking about being curled up in the corner like a blubbering mess. We're talking about what we often hear in church life, that reverent awe of a holy, righteous God. Last week we read in verses 10 and 11 this. That in the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. As you work out what God puts in, always remember that He sees all, He knows all. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. In working out our salvation, keep reminding yourself that he knows all and yet he still loves you. It's not a bad thing to have a reverent awe of a saviour who we we will all one day bow the knee before. Is it not inspiring to you to think that what he asks of us, he also gives us the resources to accomplish? But it requires a step of faith on our part. It requires us to do something, to put into practice those things that he's working with us on. Friends, that's owning your faith. It's yours, it's mine to grow through living, through working out what God is putting in. So your parenting might not be the same as mine. That's okay. Work out those things that God is challenging you with. It's the same in your, in your career life, in your work life, in your witness in the way that you go about your quiet times, in the way you apply God's word, 
continue to do what he is leading you in later on we'll see in philippians paul said let us live up to what we have already attained that's what he's asking now as we move on i really wonder if you were to write to someone or perhaps a group of people about what it might look like to work out their salvation what would you write down i was thinking if it was me i would probably mention the importance of studying god's word that's that's key I would probably mention the importance of being faithful in prayer. Perhaps the value of memory verses, not only in your own life, but in your testimony and your witness to others. Perhaps I would mention fellowship. Don't give up meeting together. Being bold in your witness. Yeah, what does Paul say? As he contemplates how to practically guide the Philippians on how to apply these things, what does he say? He says there in verse 14, do everything without complaining or arguing. Now, is that not a statement we all find challenging to live by? I mean, honestly, Paul, in a sense, I'd rather you tell me just to read my Bible more. In a sense, I'd rather you just tell me to pray more. I can do those sorts of things. But these things that affect my heart, well, they're a bigger challenge. The term complaining refers more to what's going on inside. We hear things, we're challenged with things, and there's a rebellion going on. Arguing kind of is where that takes a more public persona. Probably one of the key indicators as to where we are at in these things is in the area of complaining or arguing and what that looks like to our heart state. We feel that we're not getting what we want. Selfishness tells us, I want what I want and I'm not getting it, so I'm going to make sure that those around me know about it. I'll either stew over it internally or I'll make everyone else who's around me listen to my opinion. The people of Israel, we know in the wilderness wanderings, constantly complained. And the charge against them was that they weren't complaining about Moses so much. They weren't complaining about their leaders so much. They were complaining about their God, the one who was leading them. It's sobering to think that by extension, we can be like them. Those things that God is working to get us to do, to change, to implement perhaps, and yet there's a rebellion going on there's complaining going on even arguing perhaps it's also true in how we respond in public settings in church life now that's not to say just that constructive discussion and dialogue are not healthy in fact I, I, I really firmly believe that the sign of a growing mature fellowship of God's people is that they can have robust honest conversations while still being united in Christ but to do that something is required of us that something is humility humility to accept a differing opinion to acknowledge that we are not always right to submit and even support the decisions that differ from your own and this is entirely consistent with the pattern of Jesus that we saw last week 
He who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. As with many directives found in the epistles, there's a kind of cause and effect cycle to be seen. The result of a non-complaining attitude is a nature that is pure and blameless. It's a person that is enjoyable to be around. We all know those people. They're great to be around. These are people who are quick to show grace, not judgment. They think before they speak. Yes, they are bold to stand for what they believe, but it's not characterized by angry outbursts. It doesn't lead to frustration and anger. These are the ones who, who in humility, think of others more highly than themselves. That's what he is in the business of doing. That's what our God is in the business of doing. The question is, will will we be willing vessels to continue to allow him to work? Well, the result of working out what God puts in, of living a life without complaining or arguing and becoming blameless and pure, has a direct impact on all of those around us. And that's what Paul spends the next few verses talking about. He says, first of all, there's an influence in the world, verse 15, that we be children of God without fault in this crooked and depraved generation as we shine like stars in the universe as we hold out the word of life. Church, it's a pretty straightforward application, is it not? You and I ought to be so radically different from the nature of that of the world. Being pure and blameless means there is no accusation that can stick. Nothing in us that would undermine the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ that we are presenting to those around us. Those, I might add, who we believe and we know desperately need to hear it. In effect, it is the gospel message they hear. They don't notice the hypocrisy of our lives. Now you say we cannot change anyone, and that is true, but the one who is in the business of changing you, in the business of changing me, can and does. Every day. Every moment of every day. Again, can I say, is it not exciting to think that you or I could be used by God's grace through working out what he is doing inside us to see people those around us coming to know Jesus. Well, Paul goes on and he talks about his own joy as he thinks about the Philippians. The Philippians had an impact on Paul. You know that we can have an influence on our leaders even. Paul says that he, that he boasts in the Philippians. But the focus of this boasting was the Philippians themselves, not Paul. He's not saying, aren't I clever? Aren't I gifted? Aren't I this? Aren't I that? No, his boasting is in the Philippians, in what they're able to accomplish in this life. He said the same thing about the Corinthians and the church at Thessalonica also. It was the testimony of the Philippians that causes Paul to rejoice, to boast as a proud parent would of his own children. Now, I have five children. Many of you know that. I'm very proud of my kids. I'm proud of the people that they've grown into. 
I'm proud of the response that they have each made to the gospel message in their own way. I'm proud of their careers. I'm proud of their care and concern for each other and for others around them. As a parent, you're proud of your kids too, or you ought to be, because they're yours. God gave them to you. Paul's proud of the Philippian Christians. They were special to him. Those who obey and grow, whether he is there or not. Paul is so proud of their progress and he expects to confidently say to his God, look at the ones that you have entrusted to my care. Look at their growth. Look at their strength, their character. That's who Paul boasts in. Church, I want to say on behalf of of the pastoral team, uh, truly, uh, we are joyful to God because of your progress and joy in the faith. When we hear your testimonies, whether they be public or more in a private setting, when we hear of your boldness to proclaim Jesus to those who don't know him, when we witness your willing service, your welcoming of strangers, your generosity to those in need, your eagerness to bear each other's burdens, when we see your passion for God's word, we cannot help but say, thank you, God, for producing what he's producing in our midst. There is no greater ministry joy than to see these things in ever-increasing abundance. Yet don't stop. Keep working out what God is putting in. Own your faith. Live it out. Finally, Paul says in the last couple of verses, the powerful testimony that we have toward each other. But even of being poured out like a drink offering and the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Joy in circumstances. Somehow Paul is able to rejoice through the circumstances of life, through all that he had witnessed, through all that he had been a part of, he's still able to rejoice. And we know this is a key theme throughout this book. And Paul's experiences in his own life can't be overlooked in this manner. Five times he received from the Jews 49 lashes minus one. Three times he's beaten with rods. Once he's stoned. Three times, at least three times, he was shipwrecked. Spends a night and day in the open sea. He says, I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger in rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from the Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. (laughs) That's a list. Paul knows how to be joyful in all circumstances. Yet, what about his thorn in the flesh? He felt that it hindered his ministry and he begged the Lord to take it away. And Jesus says, no. My grace is sufficient for you. Paul's perspective was not from the top looking down. He's not sitting in some nice villa in Rome, writing to these peasant Philippians. He is, as it were, in the trenches, on the front line of gospel ministry. If ever someone was qualified to murmur and complain, it was Paul. 
yet his response to the hardship was to rejoice. And he asked the Philippians, in turn, to rejoice with him. You see, when a Christian is able to stand firm in Christ through the trials of life, whatever form they may take, there are others that look around and yes, they take notice, they take heart. Others are inspired to persevere in their own circumstances. They are led to thank God for what they are witnessing, to support each other, to wonder at the faithfulness of God. Now, friends, we know when one suffers, we all suffer. We all grieve. When one rejoices, we all rejoice. When one faith is seen to be worked out, it inspires others to do likewise. All this happening while we work out what God is putting in. Well, as we conclude, friends, I encourage you, work out your salvation. Own your part of the process of sanctification. James 1.22 says, Do not simply be hearers of the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. What's going on in those places where no one else is privy to? Because it's what goes on in there that is the true indication of what kind of person we are, what kind of Christian we are. Like the cordless drill you can go to Bunnings and buy. It's not what's on the outside that counts. It's what's made up of the inside. Church, own it. Ask God to help you in working it out. How do you apply the things that you're being challenged to work on? Read up. Ask questions of those you respect. Our God will never ask you to do what he has not in turn equipped you to. Now, just as we close, I want to say a few words to those of you who are in the group that I spoke to earlier, who aren't yet disciples of Jesus. These things are just too hard to live out in your own strength. You can't do it. The Spirit of God is required to compel us, to challenge us, to inspire us, to comfort us, to strengthen us. But God invites you to encounter the blessings of knowing him through faith in Jesus Christ, to experience the joy, peace, the mercy and grace of being a follower of Jesus of knowing his power at work in you to accomplish all the plans he has for you. Let me pray. Father God, we want to thank you for the power of your word. We thank you that as we come to it, it is new, it is fresh every morning. I pray that each and every one of us will know what it is to be transformed through the renewing of our minds, that we would know what it means to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. For it is you, our God, who works in us to will and to act according to his good purpose. May we be appreciative and may we understand what it means to fulfill our part of the, of the responsibility. To live it out, to own it, to bear fruit as our God and Saviour would want us to. We commit these things to you in the name of Jesus. Amen.